Welcome to this new episode of Ask Stago, the podcast dedicated to provide expert answers to your expert question in hemostasis. I am Ceci Roque and I'm very excited to be the podcast co-host for today, along with my colleague Audrey Carlo. In honor of World Federation of Hemophilia's upcoming annual World Hemophilia Day on April 17 and the awareness campaign currently being spread over social media, today we will be addressing current practices around screening, diagnosing, and monitoring patients suspected or confirmed with hemophilia. Audrey, can you please tell us who will be answering our question today? Hello, Cecile. Today, our guest is Paul Riley, Scientific Business Development Manager, covering North America for Stago. Paul is a member of the scientific marketing team and helps to bridge the gap between the key thought leaders, helping to explain and create the latest advancements in hemostasis in North America for Stego. For sure, he will utilize the knowledge he has accumulated in this context of hemophilia for this hemophilia awareness purpose we have today. Hello, Paul, and welcome back to Ask Stego. Hello to my longtime and dear colleagues. Thank you very much for having me back on this podcast. Paul, let's go straight to our first question. Could you describe hemophilia for audience here today? Well, Cecile, hemophilia has been known for some time as a tendency to bleed from a combination of the Greek words hema or blood and philia or affection. The disease in its inherited form is due to a deficiency of factor VIII, known as hemophilia A, or deficiency of factor IX, referred to as hemophilia B. Thousands of different mutations have been documented over the years giving rise to hemophilia A and hemophilia B. Since the genes responsible for productions of factor VIII or factor IX are located on the X chromosome, females will be carriers if they carry one copy of a defective gene giving rise to hemophilia. Thus, hemophilia is known as a sex-linked condition. Does it mean that there are more men affected with hemophilia? Yes, Audrey. Females display bleeding symptoms when homozygous for a particular mutation in factor VIII or factor IX, in this way carrying two copies of a defective gene. On even rarer occasions, females may also be compound heterozygotes with copies of two different mutations giving rise to hemophilia. On the other hand, men only need to carry one copy of a defective factor VIII or factor IX gene to display bleeding symptoms. Very interesting. Paul, and it sounds like we have known about hemophilia for a long time. Are there any historical figures with hemophilia, for example? Yes, many historical figures throughout our long and storied human history have had hemophilia with symptoms of varying severities. The most well-known of these historical figures included several members of the British royal family who were descendants of Queen Victoria. Unfortunately, with the tendency for royal families to marry other royal families among different countries, the mutation carried by Queen Victoria, responsible for hemophilia B, made its way into several different royal families, including those from Russia, Spain, and Germany. But luckily enough there, we are not all from royal families. Can you tell us what is the actual incidence of hemophilia in the worldwide? In the past, hemophilia A incidence was considered one in 5,000 live births, and hemophilia B incidence was one in 25,000. However, a recent study based on more accurate prevalence at birth found approximately 20% higher prevalence across different countries based on newer analytical methods and on much more accurate patient registries taking into account the large variability between different countries. 
Moreover, hemophiliacs are found throughout the world from all ethnicities, and more studies every year point to the need for better standardization of care. Though to be clear, the science has come a very long ways from how we previously understood and cared for these patients, even 20 to 30 years ago. So, Paul, can you tell us how clinicians, with the help of clinical laboratory, commonly screen and diagnose patients with hemophilia? I'm not talking here about the factor 8 or 9 assessment here, because we already covered this topic a few weeks ago in a previous episode. But I am sure that is not all about determination of factor levels. This is true, Cecile. Actually, many tests which can be performed by the laboratory. Importantly, the clinician must start from the family history as well as any genetic counseling available, which can identify at-risk patients before birth. In that ideal situation where the family is receiving regular clinical care, then clinicians can watch for easy bruising, spontaneous bleeding, joint bleeds, or bleeding following trauma or surgery. You can imagine many different scenarios, but if those symptoms are present in a newborn infant, that is before two months of age or during early childhood, then the laboratory will run routine coagulation tests, including prothrombin time or PT, activated partial thromboplastin time or APTT, fibrinogen, as well as depending on those first tests, von Willebrand disease laboratory tests, and in the case of suspected platelet disorders, platelet function assays. And this process Paul, may become complicated even in the best circumstances. We are all aware of patients' experience in the clinical care that are varying widely across different geographies. And even within a given country, the level of care depends on multiple factors. However, assuming the clinician is properly assessing patient history and making sure at-risk families are engaged in the continuum of care, Let's go back to the role of the lab. What tests are performed there? If the APTT is elevated compared to the upper limit of the normal range, tests for factor eight and factor nine are performed next, usually automated one-stage assay-based methods. The one-stage assay is run at three different dilutions of patient plasma to buffer prior to measurement with the College of American Pathologists, or CAP, recommending 1 to 10, 1 to 20, and 1 to 40 dilutions. Yes, this involves different dilution to examine parallelism or non-parallelism to determine if the patient has inhibitors. This is something what we covered with Alex in the episode 4. Can you just remind us the main part of it? From those three first dilutions, depending on how the results visually compare in a parallel fashion with respect to the calibration curve, and if the one-stage assay results from the different dilutions agree within 20% per the CAP guidelines, we can stop there and report the mean result. If the results show non-parallelism to calibration, mixing will follow. And could you describe the mixing study in more detail, please? A mixing study involves mixing the patient plasma with pooled normal plasma, commonly at a ratio of one to one then measuring the APTT again. If the mixing study results in correction of the initial APTT elevation back into the normal range, we can conclude based on the scenario described here, the patient has factor eight or factor nine deficiency. Depending on the severity of the deficiency and considering the clinical and family history, as well as results from genetic testing, the clinician will diagnose hemophilia A if factor eight is low or hemophilia B if factor 9 is low. If there is no correction, 
an inhibitor or what's known as an autoantibody against factor eight or factor nine could be a possibility. Or there could be an even different possibility known as lupus anticoagulant, one of the thrombophilia disorders, which you already described in a past podcast episode. Well, that doesn't sound complicated at all, Paul. Oh, that's right. <laughs> On a more serious note, Cecil. Paul, can you maybe make the process more simple for the lab? Yes, Audrey. The assay and or instrument manufacturer should be able to provide comprehensive guidance to perform and program the instrument testing, along with recommended procedures for assay validation, all of which depend on local preferred practices. In addition, the laboratory information system or even middleware on board the instrument can greatly assist with certain steps in the process of running and reporting assay results. Paul, now that you have laid out the different steps uh, taken by the lab, in consultation with a clinician, could you tell us about the patient treatment and the further role of the lab? Yes, Cecile. I realize these steps may sound lengthy, but they're all important to run and in the correct order to conclusively diagnose the patient. Now that the patient is diagnosed, the clinician will consider patient history age, lifestyle, and assessment of patient needs versus the activity levels of the patient. One of the first steps is to establish a pharmacokinetic profile using factor eight or factor nine dosed back into the patient intravenously. Again, since hemophilia A patients are deficient in factor eight, then factor eight is provided using either a plasma-derived or recombinant source of factor eight. For hemophilia B patients, factor nine is provided. And Paul, for our listener, without any degree in pharmaceutical sciences, can you explain what is the pharmacokinetic profile and what does the clinician do with this information? Audrey, the pharmacokinetic or PK profile provides a unique fingerprint of how the factor eight or factor nine is utilized, then broken down by the body in the hemophilia patient. The PK profile tells the clinician how often to provide dosing to the patient and the amount given for each dose. What other consideration may have come into play at this time? The clinician could consider all sorts of things, like currently available and new therapies in that country, safety, presence or development of factor inhibitors, age, ongoing bleeding symptoms, activity levels desired, potential surgical procedures, reimbursement, along with other considerations from the patient's family and or their caregivers. Obviously, in children, parental concerns and available caregivers will play a central role in order for the patient and family impact to be minimized while balanced against practical concerns such as schooling and physical activity. As you both can see, many considerations play a role, and care will be given over a lifetime of interactions between the patient and the healthcare system. And unfortunately, we're running short on time, but what can you tell us about the newly available therapies for hemophilia? The hemophilia treatment landscape is rapidly changing, with plasma-derived and recombinant factor eight and factor nine now being replaced in many situations by more extended half-life or EHL therapies, which can reduce the frequency of dosing by up to 50%. EHL therapies commonly utilized modified forms of factor eight and factor nine which are more resistant to breakdown by the patient. EHL therapies 
and their management are complicated by inaccurate recovery and one-stage assay-based methods, underestimation or overestimation, which depends on the drug itself and the APTT reagent. In those situations, chromogenic factor eight or factor nine assays may be desirable. In addition, long-acting non-factor-based therapies are now available, including emicizumab, a bivalent monoclonal antibody acting to bypass factor eight altogether in hemophilia A patients. Emicizumab is considered a breakthrough therapy for hemophilia A patients with and without factor eight inhibitor as it is administered subcutaneously on a weekly basis. The patient is now able to receive or self-dose at home. There are other non-factor therapies in development for both hemophilia A and hemophilia B, as well as genetic therapies intended to solve the factor eight or nine deficiency on the DNA level, potentially providing hope for an eventual cure to this complicated disorder. To be sure, many unanswered questions around genetic therapies still confound research scientists, laboratorians, and clinicians. As you can both see very clearly, personalized treatment and specific laboratory methods to aid in the effectiveness of those therapies has been and will continue to be very much integral to the ongoing saga of hemophilia care far into the future. Well, thank you very much, Paul. We greatly appreciate your thorough but balanced overview. Thank you so much for inviting me, Audrey. And as they say in France, au revoir, à la prochaine. <laughs> yes, and just for you, the English speakers in the back of the room, Paul said farewell and see you next time. <laughs> for such a rare disease, there are such uh, a great deal of things to know and great to hear so many advances are happening for these patients. Thank you, Paul, uh, for this overview. And it's a great to hear you are working on your French. It is now time to close this episode. Thank you all for listening. As usual, all literature sources are listed in the podcast description. And please feel free to send us any question that you may have at our email address, askatstago.com. We will be happy to address any question in the following episodes. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Stago. Diagnostics is in our blood.